PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practice since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Hi, my name is Tony Delito. I'm Professor and Chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh, and I have the pleasure of moderating this podcast. I have on the line with me Dr. Shirley Sarman from Washington University in St. Louis and Dr. Barbara Norton from Washington University in St. Louis. And the topic of our podcast today is a perspective piece that Dr. Sarman wrote. It was published in PTJ, and the title was The Human Movement System, Our Professional Identity. And I'd like to first begin by saying that I thought what Shirley did in this piece was marvelous historical perspective of how we've gotten to this point of bringing the human movement system to a conceptualized to a point and where it is, as she puts it, should be a system. And I remember when I first was seeing patients and I would open up a chart and you'd see a review of systems and you'd see the nervous system, the musculoskeletal system and so forth. And, and now we have Shirley proposing human movement system. And, and that's provocative, and I thought at first. So what I'd like to do is first ask Shirley when conceptualizing this as you've gone through it, when did you get the idea that it ought to be a system? It was these Rose Garden gatherings, and Steve Rose was the director at the time. And I remember Steve arriving at Washington University and wanting very much to promote the idea of pathokinesiology. Sort of the more he worked on it and had us work on it and develop it, the idea was that just the pathology part was a little bit limiting and that it needed to kind of go beyond the pathology part. And that's when we started sort of talking about movement, and then, again, his untimely death, and then people gathering at the Rose Garden, and we did silly things, and we did some sensible kind of smart things. And I think one of them was talk about the possibilities of this movement system. And then from having opportunities to travel lots of places and also being in the profession for a really long period of time, and then I spent 20 years in the Department of Neurology as well. And it just became so clear to me that professions that really had recognition, that really knew what they were about, were ones that were identified with a body system of some sort, whether it's physiological or anatomical. And the longer I've been in this profession, the more I realize what a really key role we could have in healthcare over the long haul, and that the only way we will have this kind of recognition is if people understand that there is this body system that needs to be monitored throughout its lifespan. So it's kind of the culmination of Steve starting us thinking, the discussions at the Rose Garden gatherings with lots of key people, my own work in different professions and seeing how they had recognition that we didn't get. Also, when we started these diagnosis dialogue conferences that Barb Norton spearheaded, and again, key people came together and reinforced the idea of, of a movement system. So I think it was this multi-factors that kind of locked it down in my mind. And are you comfortable with the pace of this system that's catching on? <laughs> no. That's a real, e real easy, short answer. The Rose Garden things were in the 1980s. I did my Mary McMillan in 98 and, again, tried to promote the concept, and we did it again with 
the diagnosis dialogue, which I guess we're moving into our seventh year now. But I'll tell you, Tony, and you're going to be the one that can really tell me whether this is right or not, but I really think our business model is going to have to change substantially. I think healthcare reform, and as much as I'm a proponent of it, I think is going to not mean the same thing for physical therapy in the business model as it has in the past. And so I think the time is ripe for us to take on a new identity, not a new one. I think we have an old identity, and I think it's just people who just provide treatment but don't figure out anything. So I think there are going to be other forces that push us in this direction. So I'm going to be interested in whether you think I'm on target or off the target. I think there's always been opportunity for us, you know, throughout time. And I'm frustrated, too, by how we sometimes, I think, waste an opportunity by focusing on the wrong sorts of things. And the business model has been an issue that's been a challenge for us. And I agree with you. I think there's a move toward quality. And I think that just alone getting us away from the present business model and thinking more in terms of quality and also getting people to realize, getting other disciplines to realize that the contributions of certain professions in our situation, you know, with regard to correcting movement or optimizing movement is such a key component to delivering quality care. And again, it's an opportunity for us. So let's start a little bit of a conversation on barriers. What is getting in the way? And Barbara, I'd like to lean on you a little bit on this because I know you've been hard at work, you know, with the Diagnosis Dialogue conferences. What do you think the biggest barrier is to this catching on? I think from the perspective of the diagnosis dialogue conversations, the issues seem to be getting people on the same page with terminology and to be thinking about things from the same perspective. So there are lots of different ways people think about their interactions with patients now. And we started way back in the days of the impact conferences, also in the late 80s, to focus on the notion that physical therapists needed to conduct an examination and come up with a diagnosis. And everybody seems to be sort of on board with that notion The problem arises when you try to figure out, so what are the diagnoses that we're going to make that are within the scope of our practice? And so that's been the biggest stumbling block, I think, with the diagnosis dialogue conferences also, trying to figure out what is the framework that we can use to describe these conditions that are within the scope of our practice and will be good ways to direct our treatment. I'm going to jump in here because I'm kind of thinking in what I call big terms, and I think from almost the late days of the polio time, all through the neurological eras, that because we started out as a profession that was all about treating people, that we've made all of our major recognizable terms treatment systems. You know, we had the Bobas system and the PNF system, the Maitland system, the McKinsey system. So when you've got a whole context of we're just about treatment systems, then it's very hard to make diagnosis part of what you're doing. And what I find almost entertaining is that almost all of these systems, like what used to be just manipulative therapy, is now manual therapy. And manual therapy includes everything that's physical therapy. You know, I mean, I don't know what's left out. So, you know, and McKenzie's had to, to change a bit of what they're doing. So I think that in many ways, trying to have a big paradigm shift so that what the real driver is, is what's the diagnosis of that patient rather than what treatment regime am I going to apply to a patient. Only by sort of that reworking will people start to value what the exam they're doing 
and what tools to pull out. I mean, you know, Gwen Joe likes to talk about multimodal treatment. I think that's marvelous. Let's have multimodal treatment, but let's define what it is we're treating rather than I'm going to use the McKinsey approach or the MSI approach or whatever approach to the program. To me, that's a paradigm shift for the profession. So I guess the question is, are people going through that process when they... No. You don't think they are? No. No. And, and, you know, in fact, Tony, as you know, I do lots of continuing education courses, and my little data sample is when I ask people, if you had five low back pain patients, do you do the same exam on those patients? No. Nobody does. Nobody has an exam. I'm sure there are some bodies. But for the most part, the majority of therapists do not have an examination that they use. And I don't care what it is. They just don't consistently do the same thing with every patient. And I think part of that is time pressures. How much time do they have to do their initial exam on the patient? What do they feel comfortable doing? How many people are waiting in line, et cetera? So, no, I don't think that that's the way people are moving at all. I think it's all about tell me what's going to be the best way to get rid of this patient's pain and how many times should I do it. I think from the standpoint of other ways that people might examine people has to do more with special tests, in particular in musculoskeletal, where you're doing special tests to identify the pathomanatomic structure that might be involved. And those are tests that we've, you know, learned from orthopedic surgeons and others that are relevant for defining the problem that they're going to address, but not necessarily relevant for the problem that the physical therapist is going to address. So Paula Ludwig's done a great job through presentations and editorials describing the difference that she sees between the pathoanatomic approach and the movement-based approach to trying to define the problem within the scope of physical therapist practice for shoulder conditions. And if you can do it for the shoulder, you can probably do it for anything. Yeah, that's the really important point. I think if nothing else, if we could just get people to think about what is the movement problem instead of just what's the pathoanatomic tissue that's gone bad that we're trying to identify, that would be huge. I mean, I enjoyed immensely the diagnosis dialogue conferences. How do you get that out? I mean, what's the way to get this out and across to people? I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure I totally agree with the general statement that it's not being done at all, because I, I guess I see practices where it is done. But I would also agree with you that it's probably not as widely done as we'd like to see it. And that's when I say it, I mean, you know, the exam before the patient, the standardized exam that's given to a patient. And that encompasses more than just what other professions do with the patient. I think one way that you can begin to get a handle on it is what we've been trying to do with some of the various sections, and the sections on women's health has actually been very instrumental in developing a diagnosis dialogue group within the section, and there's a group that's been working steadily over the last three or so years to meet almost monthly by phone conference to discuss ways in which they can describe the conditions that they see in patients with women's health conditions from a movement perspective sort of in contrast to or in conjunction with the ways in which they are used to describing them from a physiological or anatomic perspective. And it's been kind of an interesting process to follow this group who were mostly practicing all pretty much the same way, using the same sort of terminology, sort of come to grips with the idea about there are some commonalities across some of the problems that they have defined previously in terms of the movement problem, and that it helps to be a useful focus for what they're doing to define them in terms of the movement problem and also helps give them a better idea of what they should focus on with their treatment. 
So they sort of go back and forth a bit, and they sometimes will revert back to what they had been saying before, and then you bring them back to the point about, so what does this have to do with the movement, and how are you going to address that as a physical therapist? And then they're right back on board again. So they've made tremendous progress in developing a whole set of diagnoses that they're using in trying to promote within their section. So that's one way to go about it. What's that formula? If you were to go to a new group now, a different group, where would they start and how would they move forward? I think it's sort of like what the EDGE task force has been doing. Here's a parallel. I've been going to the EDGE task force meetings for several years now also, about the same amount of time that we've had the diagnosis dialogue conferences. And what the EDGE task force has been doing under Eddie Field's great direction is to define what are all the outcomes measures that can be used for the various conditions that affect the patients that they see. And when they started out, they started out with going to every kind of medical condition they could think of, like stroke and Parkinson's and every kind of disease entity, and try and find out what are the outcomes measures that are used for those kinds of patients. And then they go to another area of neurology, for example. And they started having then overlap in the outcomes measures that are used across some of those types of patients. And so I think now they're beginning to focus a little bit more on, so what are the commonalities across these patients and the way that they are moving and what are the outcomes measures that can actually attack those? So I think if you think about it from the perspective of what is it the patient should be able to do differently when you get finished with physical therapy in terms of outcomes measures, is that really so much different across the different pathologic conditions or is it different across the different movement problems? So again, to try to keep a focus on what is the movement problem rather than what is the pathoanatomic problem. How does that relate to what you're doing as a physical therapist? How does the pathoanatomic diagnosis inform what you're doing from the movement perspective? But your real focus should be on the movement. So what are the commonalities that you see across patients with different kinds of pathoanatomic conditions that help you from a movement perspective? So I think it's a slow process. Yeah, I've always viewed the outcome instrument, and there is quite a proliferation of outcome instruments across the board now. I never thought I'd say this, but there's almost too many instruments out there. But, you know, they always seem, in my mind, to be the marker. This is what we're going to use as the currency to say the patient's better or not better. But I think that's distinctive from what you're talking about. Again, before we get to this diagnosis, there's this exam that people need to be doing, and that exam needs to be focused on the movement problem of that patient. I'm going to go back to the question of how do we move this off-center? I like the idea of the sections. I understand the idea of the sections, and I actually remember you know, how enlightening it was when you got people to these dialogue conferences. They started out with a very stereotypical doing what the orthopedic surgeons did, you know, as you said earlier, and then they finally, through a lot of time and energy, you know, got their exams moved over more to the analysis of the movement problem. And it seemed to me like that's a long, long process. I'm going to go back to this. How do you catalyze this? How do we move this more quickly? It almost seems like you're reinventing the wheel with every, <laughs> with, every, with every single group of people. I do think that working through the sections is going to have the same problem that was present when they tried to do the specialties. The first section that got its specialty exam in place was the cardiopulmonary one because there were few people and not that much divergence in opinion. Much <laughs> like, no, I'm serious, like women's health. And the last one was orthopedic because you had so many people pulling in so many different directions that it was hard to get focused on one direction. So I think I won't be surprised if the orthopedic section is almost the last rather than the first for that reason. 
I think, Tony, there's a couple aspects. One is I think that people, and I'm, I'm one of those people that needs to try to put together an exam and put it out there. For example, I've tracked what the APTA did for this. What is the exam for the annual visit? And it's a review of systems that doesn't belong to physical therapy. Do you know what I mean? It's like a yeah. physician assistant review of exams. I think the only thing you could say was an analysis of movement in that whole exam was balance testing. Nothing else was specifically about movement. So number one is I take it from the top. People putting out what would movement exams really look like. You know, if there's anything that goes on, it's like looking at gait. And so there's some tendency to look at gait, but I don't know how standardized it is when people report back about their observations on gait. And we're trying to look at specifics of how a joint movements, the scapula versus the humerus, et cetera. Well, that's not typical part of anybody's exam, which is pretty amazing to me. You know, and today we've got lots of ways to distribute that kind of thing. So all of this focus on diagnosis, and I want to also not fail to mention another big item, I think, about this whole human movement system, and that's switching the emphasis for physical therapy so that we're not people where somebody comes in and they get the treatment and then they go away never to be seen again. I'd really like to believe that we would never discharge anybody, but we would end an episode of care. For the reason being, our door should be always open for people to come in yearly to have their examination to find out if everything's moving right, that aerobic capacity is optimal, their strength is right, etc. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, my God, surely that sounds like maintenance. But, that's, the, yeah, that's the word yeah. that can't be used. <laughs> I'm, but you, but, I'm jokingly. I'm no, sorry, I'm joking. I know, I know. Yeah. But, you know, and this to me, this is what's so important, is that people have to realize that musculoskeletal problem is a lifestyle condition. Yeah. And if we have to go in and get our cholesterol checked all regularly... <laughs> then I think we ought to go in and get our movement system checked regularly. If we well, get our teeth checked every year. It's interesting. There's a, um, and you, you asked me to comment on this early in the conversation yeah. about how I think the systems are going to force change, that the healthcare reform is going to force change. Yes. Cholesterol, there's a great drug for cholesterol, and yep. the drug is very cost-effective. If you look at claims data right now, and just about every, whether it's commercial or Medicare, the runaway claim right now is musculoskeletal conditions. Yeah. These are chronic conditions, it, whether we like it. to admit it or not. They're chronic conditions. Totally. And the reason they're runaway is there's no drug that mm -hmm. works, and any sort of <laughs> surgery is usually very expensive. And so we, as a profession, haven't made the case yet, anyway, that what you're talking about with regard to bringing people back and, you know, really managing their condition is yeah. what you're, we're really talking about, can be very cost-effective compared to what we're now doing, which is no one's managing anyone's condition except, you know, when the patient happens to walk into somebody who will do something to them, a lot of times something gets done to them. And that's not really solving our problems because we're doing more total joints than we can afford. We're doing more spine surgeries than we can afford. And almost everybody, especially with regard to spine surgery, realizes that most of this is not necessary. So what's driving that is people are in pain. Tony, I want to kind of jump in with we had a really interesting discussion at school the other day, and I think this is why I'm trying so hard to get the idea across that we have to take responsibility for the patient, and they have to see us have a responsibility for the patient. Practicing for as long as I did, I had so many patients that didn't come back. You can't get the follow-up data because you don't know whether they got so well they didn't think it was necessary and they didn't want to pay another $50, or they didn't get well. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I, I know that from subsequent 
conversations with people, I find out, oh, well, you know, my pain went away now, so I didn't think I needed to come back. So you don't get the follow-up questionnaire. Well, they don't feel responsible for coming back to me because the doctor sent them in the first place. You know, I'm just an agent. Like, i got to go to the pharmacy again and get my refill. They don't have a relationship with that pharmacist. Now, it's better with PT, but it's got to be stronger if they think we own a system of their body. I see exactly what you're saying, and I think it's, it's one way that I think that can converge with reform is, you know, moving the therapist more as a front line with yeah. these patients. And, yeah. and the models right now people are talking about, we really need to be able to take advantage of some of these opportunities that are out there. The shortage of PCPs right now is an opportunity for physical therapists. Yeah. And, and putting physical therapists in partnership with PCPs or in partnership even with nurse practitioners and PAs and some of these mall clinics, this is an opportunity that's sitting there for us. And what we need to take advantage of is the fact that maybe the easiest way to show effectiveness of these types of approaches is to show cost savings, that we can save downstream costs in spite of the investment, quote-unquote, of using physical therapy early on. And that, to me, is the key. Now, going back to the topic of this conversation, you have to be careful what you ask for. How are we going to take full advantage of the situation. If we are indeed moved more on the front line mm-hmm. of taking care of people with musculoskeletal conditions, how do we take best advantage of that? To me, take best advantage means that the patient comes in and sees you yearly for their exam, and if they have a flare-up of a condition, they come back and see you to find out what they should do. Yeah. You know, I was at a conference and some doctor said, well, just tell me what a generic exercise program was that will help all these people with hip pain. And I'm like, they need to see a therapist for a decent exam first. And he said, well, we don't have enough. And I said, you have enough dentists to look at everybody's teeth. So to me, the the business paradigm should change from one where you see the same patient frequently to one in which you see lots of different patients infrequently. Then we'd have enough people. Gwen Joel was also telling us about how in Australia the musculoskeletal pain patients go to the physios first. Automatically. Absolutely. And I just happened to be reviewing an article where they're talking about how many primary care physicians actually refer patients to orthopedic surgeons that result in increased waiting time and increased workload for the surgeon when they don't need to see them. And that if a physical therapist examines that same patients, they know how to manage the problem without doing undue referrals to the surgeon. And surgeons won't see a patient unless they come with an MRI or come with everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Most of the time, that's unnecessary. I think a lot of places are moving similar to Australia. The Canadians are doing similar things now. But what they're finding is they don't really believe that the entry-level therapist has these capabilities right now. You have to get a specialized training to be able to take care of that. Is that similar to what they're doing in Australia? I think it's – well, I'll just pop in a little bit because, you know, in England, too, they have this advanced – skilled practitioner. And some people get that confused to me with in Australia and New Zealand, people actually go for their physiotherapy treatment analysis. In England, what they're doing is going in and those therapists, and they don't even have to be physical therapists that have advanced training, are the ones who are acting like physician assistants. In other words, they do the screening like you need an x-ray or you don't need an x-ray or you need to go to physical therapy and this is what they should try and do. In Australia and New Zealand, it's like the therapy they get. It's not the physician assistant screening like it is in England. I've never heard that they had to have advanced qualifications there. Good question for Gwen. Yeah. I think in Canada they do. I think in Canada you're right. Yeah, Yeah. I I think you're right. But not all provinces allow that either, I don't think. Right, right. The provinces where it's most utilized and most implemented 
are the provinces that had runaway costs, and they use it clearly as a mechanism to control costs. And it's very effective. It's been very effective. Now, missing in this whole formula is the documented outcomes of the patient, and hopefully that will be coming down the pike. We had a very interesting conference here, an interprofessional conference here in Pittsburgh, and some of these models were presented, and clearly they've got a handle on costs, and they do bend the curve in the right way from the standpoint of cost, but you'd sure like to have some sort of mechanism of saying that the outcome is better. But going back to the idea of, you know, what do these people do when they're there and linking it to movement, I think is probably what we need to do in this and, and again, getting this sort of standardized approach. So what role do you think, if anything, we both are in educational institutions, what role does, <laughs> what role does education have to do with this? Well, you know, I think teaching students how to analyze movement would be, like, really useful. To me, it's a strange irony because, again, drawing on my experience of teaching many continuing education programs, you get the feeling that people pass their anatomy and kinesiology in school and they think, whew, thank heavens that's over with. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore because it's not valued out in practice. And I'm not sure in educational programs there's a tight enough linkage demonstrated between what you're learning for clinical practice versus what you learned in kinesiology and even anatomy. It's like they're separate courses and never the twain shall meet. So I think more reinforcement in the educational program itself as well as out in clinical practice seeing that demonstrated, which I can guarantee you is not very much demonstrated. I typically put videos up for people to identify and tell me what do they see happening, and I can tell you that there's not a lot of answers being shouted out. So in going back to more specifically, you know, with educational programs, I guess the one thing I know that has been brought up continuously by people in the education world is the difference between our graduate and the graduate that's been out practicing for two or three years. And some would argue that the experience itself is the expectation. Expectation would be that this person is functioning at a higher level. Others would argue that if you're in a practice where you're seeing people where you don't have the time, you know, that you can actually see less of a, less skill, especially in the examination, evaluation, diagnosis component. Let me understand clearly what you're mm-hmm. saying, Tony, is that people going out that don't have enough time, the newer graduate or whatever, doesn't have enough time to consolidate their skills from what they learned in the school, and then they're worse, or what? what well, I think, you know, there's two sides to the coin. There's a side of experience, and I don't know what that means. To some, it would mean that you begin to see patterns, you begin to yeah. grow, you you get more efficient at what you're doing and so forth. There are some that would equate experience to efficiency, meaning that you get them in and out quicker <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, there's not a whole right. lot of thought going on. I guess that's the contrast I would make. You know, the education side has always been good to squirm out of the responsibilities by basically saying, we graduate and they're great and then practice sort of ruins them. I'm not one of those believers, by the way, but I hear this a lot. Going back to trying to be constructive, are we at a stage in education where we even know what's happening in programs across the country with regard to anything that's being taught, let alone what's taught in a movement system? We had a symposium on the movement system here this past fall, and we had Lisa Saladin from South Carolina and Terry Nordstrom from Merritt College in California, who happens to be involved heavily with the Council of Educators. He's and the president. Uh, yes, he's yeah. heavily involved as the president. 
I think their takeaway from this symposium where we talked about how does the movement system sort of fit or how do you implement movement system within education practice and research, we had them as panelists with regard to the education component. And I think it's safe to say that they would agree that not a great deal is being taught about movement analysis within the curricula except with regard to gait and that there are ways that you could try to incorporate that within the curriculum as a whole. So Lisa presented some ideas about ways in which she might incorporate new content within existing courses to make sure that the emphasis was on analyzing the movement of all components of the body, not just gait. Terry was very excited about that notion and, and carried some of those ideas with him to the Clinical Education Summit. We have this wonderful perspective piece that takes us historically through you know, the history of the movement system. I think very compelling cases made that it Thank is you, Tony. I appreciate that, that. that it is the professional identity. Don't you think it's logical to now in a very formal way ask programs that are teaching DPTs just what exactly they're doing? And is any process going on out there where one could look at program A, program B, program C and say there's a common link? The people that I have asked at individual programs for the most part just say what Barb said before that they teach students special tests to look for the pathoanatomic problem. I think everybody would say, well, they teach kinesiology. But I also know this is that Chris Powers and Beth Fisher, USC, have put together a separate course that just designed to teach students how to observe movement because it really, I gather, wasn't incumbent in other aspects of their curriculum. And I will say the other members of this work group that the APTA appointed from very different parts of the country have also said they see a deficit in therapists knowing how to analyze movement. So I think there is that piece and there's some evidence that it's not being really done commonly in physical therapy curriculums. My diagnosis of that with regard to uh, the programs is programs are system-based uh, in many ways, and there isn't a movement system. It's kind of right, interesting. Right. But we had University of Southern California routinely bring in Beth Fisher, Mm -hmm. And Beth, as you know, would be considered more of a neurological yeah. physical Right, therapist. right, right, absolutely. But she comes into our musculoskeletal curriculum and works with some people on analyzing movement. And Very it's fun. extremely well received by the students. It becomes a bane for me as a chair because, you know, it's not it's not cheap to bring Beth in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, they, and all they do is that, and they just want more of that kind of work. And it's very easy for me to identify things that this could be put in place of, this sort of training could be put in place of, and, and, and we have done that. But it's, you know, it's, it's, when I say it's easy for me, it, it, I'm, what I'm doing, I'm discounting all of the hair pulling that happens at faculty meetings because we obviously need to get rid of things. If we're going to put something into mm -hmm. the program, we need to get mm -hmm things out of the program, and you know how those meetings go, right? <laughs> yep. yep. So, but I think it's one small example of what I would consider just a barrier to getting it. And I think that, like anything, my suggestion is, you know, there's a multiple-prong approach to this with regard to first identifying barriers and then addressing them. I think we're missing the boat if we don't identify the educational programs as a barrier, because these are your change agents. And I think they need to be prepared to take advantage of opportunities, as we've talked about earlier, that are going to be out there. And when they do get put on the front line, we want them to be in the best possible condition and be able to do the things that are going to be most effective as these frontline therapists. So that means, you know, in my mind, we have to 
make sure that we're comfortable with regard to this analysis of the movement system. And I think there are a few things that we do in education where we attempt to look across programs to find out exactly what kind of standardization is happening out there with certain processes. And this might be one that identify just how little is being done, if that is the case, and bring it to the attention so that you have people like Terry and Lisa Saladin you know, you multiply that by another 50 or 60 people and you can make a quantum leap and approach to this and addressing this issue. That would be one of my suggestions. So, Tony, what prompted you to have Beth Fisher come in and teach movement analysis to your musculoskeletal? Diagnosis dialogue meetings and the fact that we had a faculty member. We hired somebody from USC here about five years ago, and he suggested it to us, you know, when we were talking about it as faculty, and I thought, well, why not? Bring her out. And she basically came into the musculoskeletal program. And to me, it was like a small experiment, you know, mm-hmm. to see what would happen. It caught on like wildfire. And I ended up getting my neurological physical, the, the pre- pe- person teaching in the neurological physical therapy area was upset about it. She was wondering why I brought her in to do a musculoskeletal course. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, in other words, there's more, you know, there, there, there's certainly more to it and more we could do. The issue for me is. I really think that there's a lot of things that I think we need to change in curriculum and things that we need to let go and things we need to put in like this, you know, again, in this this effort to continually improve. The result of that has been, at least in my own eyes, a clear change in how our students approach, you know, at least when I see them firsthand, how they approach a problem with patients. All of us take turns covering our student clinic that is a, mm-hmm. uh, covers the student health services. And, you know, we've seen our students go from checking pelvic landmarks to looking at people move. <laughs> wow. <laughs> As you can imagine. Now, that's been a 10-year transition. It's clearly happened. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that this is an important component. It's not just movement. There's a lot of things in practice, I think, that we need to put on the front line and have our entry-level students better prepared for if we're going to take advantage of some of the opportunities that I know are going to be there for us in the future. It sounds like what needs to happen is to put some models out there of how you might pull this off. And you've got one example, and we've got other examples here. People could see what it is that they might do differently to try and affect this kind of change. And with as much technology as available today, you could provide learning opportunities a variety of different ways, not only for students but also for the faculty members at these various institutions. And what about in the clinical instructors? Because, you know, they're a real strong influence on what happens to your students in the long haul. They're critical, and I think we're both in agreement that trying to get a handle on what's happening with the students when they're in the clinic is critical if you're really going to have a program that is going to be able to produce the product that we want to produce. Okay, so we've tackled education. We found some barriers there. I think it would be a very good idea to try to aggregate what's being done in education and to promote some of these models so that we can get from an N of 2 to, you know, an N of 50 or 60 program seeing these sorts of things. And I think planting seeds like this would allow even more models to come across in the future. I think that's a real important thing, and it puts education at the forefront. From a practice standpoint, it really sounds like we need to take advantage of opportunities that are out there, the opportunities in healthcare reform that would put physical therapists on more of the forefront managing some of these conditions, but at the same time to take full advantage of them, we'd be missing the boat if we didn't try very hard to have movement system approaches where our therapists would be analyzing movement as opposed to some of the other things that are being done. 
Would you want to expand on that, Shirley? Yeah, I, well, I, I just want to add this whole thing. I'm just so convinced that these little musculoskeletal pains are the first steps to osteoarthritis and that we need to really promote the idea that musculoskeletal pain is a lifestyle problem, <laughs> just like eating is a lifestyle issue, and that they need to keep consulting this expert. I'd like to see us become experts in exercise again, and I hope that when the you're talking about the physical therapist being on the front line, that they would be on the front line not just for this acute episode, but come in and see me again so I can make sure that you're doing your exercises, make sure that you're moving correctly so that we start getting the responsibility for this system and not just for a stop-in, stop-out type of intervention. You have this system. I'm the expert. I can help you take care of it. It's not intensive. It'll be cheaper for you in the long run, less painful in the long run. So keep me on your call button. We've focused a lot on musculoskeletal pain problems, but they don't only exist in patients who don't have other conditions, like patients right. with neurological conditions and patients with cardiopulmonary conditions. So they're all eligible. Total agreement. And the other part is I'm really caught up to in how young kids don't have what they call fundamental skills. And I think we're also in, you know, this whole thing with the hip now is turning out that intensive sports are playing a big factor in making this hip get structurally abnormal. And we need to jump out there real fast and say, we kind of have the expertise that can help guide kids on this. And if they did their fundamentals better, they wouldn't be having all of the problems that they have as they participate in sports. So, again, this is the whole thing about analyzing movement, knowing about exercise, and look at us as experts in trying to put this together, rather than I'm just going to take care of your pain right this minute and then go your way. And research, will just say, in research, the more they can help us find out how these long-term problems are cheaper and better handled, like you're saying, in, in our thing, and trying to collect the data, which I think is going to require them to be interested in us as a responsible for their system. And, and basically, all of research related to movement is related to the movement system. So I think that's easy to make a connection there. Yeah, I think the missing piece that we have all of the time now with research is that we think of the endpoint of a study as even a one-year follow-up or a two-year follow-up as the outcome of the patient. And the outcome of the patient is critical. It's very critical. I mean, I don't want to downplay it. It's something that we need to be looking at. But we miss the boat if we don't include all of the other things that these patients are exposed to. So even if we have a study of an approach that we have in terms of managing a condition that has the same outcome as a usual care approach, in which case they, these people aren't seen at all by physical therapists. These people, even if the outcome is the same, if they're exposed to a lot less dangerous procedures, expensive procedures, and so forth, that's a success. And I think we need to see that. I mean, obviously, I think the outcome can be better and the cost less if we really optimize what we're doing with patients early on. I think that's the framework we need to be looking at with regard to the research that's going on in the future. Well, you know, there just was a paper, I guess it's about to be published, or it came off in a symposium where if you have knee surgery for a meniscal tear, you develop arthritis within a year. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're saying, well, physical therapy is an alternative, but we got to make a really good case about how physical therapy can be a lot more than, well, let's just give you quad and hamstring exercises. Yeah, yeah, it's management. And yeah, yeah, that's what, what I like mean, management. I yeah. am going to look over how you are moving that knee. Well, Barbara and Shirley, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about the human movement system, the professional identity, and I hope that our listeners gather even more information and are as excited about this as I am. Thanks for listening. 
This has been a production of APTA.